Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Ellaveld. This is Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Today, we're going to be talking about abortion. Texas has effectively banned it, and the Supreme Court refused a temporary restraining order while the case winds its way up the courts. As last week's guest, the nation's Elliot Mistel, argued Roe v. Wade has effectively been overturned, and Republican states around the country will soon follow Texas' lead with their own effective bans. If the Supreme Court ultimately ratifies that ban, as expected, and probably next year, the only recourse will be electoral. That is small comfort for women in solidly Republican states like Idaho, Wisconsin, or West Virginia. But the battlegrounds are a different story, and that includes Texas. Suppose that the only way to protect the woman's right to choose is by winning an election. In that case, there would be renewed participatory interest from single women and young voters, groups that have historically suffered from poor voter turnout. Today's guest at the top of the hour will be Jody Hicks. She is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood California. We will ask her about how she thinks the Texas abortion law affected the California recall election, which is happening right now, but voting has been going on for a month now. She has uh, been campaigning for governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. Has she noticed a difference on the ground? Is she seeing heightened urgency among voters? How does she think the issue has resonated nationally from her vantage point? Will it play a pivotal role in the 2022 midterms? The Supreme Court is expected to rule on a Mississippi abortion ban before next week's November election, inevitably thrusting the issue front and center in the final months of the campaigns. Definitely looking, Carrie, to have that conversation. It's actually a fascinating one. Trying to find a silver lining to what is just absolutely horrifying news for women and their ability to make decisions with their doctors. So, Carrie, you've been writing a lot about employee mandates and other sort of government mandates for people to get the vaccine. It certainly became an issue in the California recall. I don't think anybody's mind was changed. The big battle here in California was getting Democrats to actually turn in their ballots. And it seems that the issue of of, uh, vaccine mandates may have spurred increased interest amongst Democrats in California. Of course, California is a, is a blue state. It's a state that has always taken the pandemic seriously, and therefore its death rate per thousand people is far lower than that of like a Florida or a Texas Republican it's, states that have founded, you right, know, right. any kind of protection. Which, which, by the way, are the those are the three biggest states in the nation, right? So there's a big difference between what's happening in California and what's happening in Texas and Florida, where the you know government is so focused on how many people are dying that they're ordering. I think in both states have ordered more uh, mobile morgues in order to because they're more focused on the fact that more people are going to die than they are on trying to prevent those deaths. Anyways, it just was like. Amazing to me if you compare the difference between what Newsom has done in California versus DeSantis and Abbott in um, in Florida and Texas. 
Yeah, as much as Republicans like DeSantis and Abbott talk about freedom, I I, I would assume that the biggest freedom is that of not being in an uh, ER, uh, intubated on life support, uh, right. suffering through the horrors of, of this disease. This is not a disease where you go quietly into the night. It's horrifically painful. It's an agonizing death. They have to pump patients full of morphine just to, to sedate them to the level where they're not trying to rip out tubes from, from all over their bodies. I mean, this is a, a devastating disease, and I, I will never understand how it became a culture war issue. But, Carrie, you've been writing a lot about this, and there has been polling on the issue, right? And, and so what, what, what have the polls been telling us about the public's reaction to vaccine mandates? Well, overall, the polls tell us, and we just had a, a new one out of Politico Morning Consult yesterday that took place after um, Biden announced these new sort of aggressive, this vaccine push, right? And and they, it was, you know, anywhere from 57% to 58% to 60% support in favor of the, you know, requiring employers with 100 plus people to either vaccinate their workforce or uh, implement weekly testing. Right. Um, uh, other mandates, uh, you know, the healthcare workers, most health U.S. healthcare workers now have to get vaccinated and there's no opt out there. And that had like 57, 58. Or, no, that actually had 60 percent support. I'm just recalling my head that was that was high people are like healthcare workers listen i don't want you working on me if you haven't been vaccinated so that was 60 percent. they didn't care about the fact that there was no opt-out and you know other other instances of mandate everything was in the it was in the like high 50 percent support and the the opposition was all right around you know mid-30s all right around mid thirties, like in question after question. So the polling is is very clear. And and what Republicans are betting on, of course, is that they're, you know, they're really loud, obnoxious, like whiny, you know, belligerent, bellicose, you know, personal freedom crowd is going to get out in the midterms based on this, which I, uh, frankly, I think is still in question, but that's what they need. They need, mm-hmm. you know, they need that fire, right? If they don't have the fire, they're not, they, they don't think they're going to be able to get these people out. And I, I was listening to David, David Jolly on MSNBC last Friday. And he said, after the announcement that Biden made, he got a and he's a former GOP congressman. He's now he he's left the party. But anyway, he said that he got an email from a GOP operative that was like really giddy and said, Biden just handed us the house. And I don't know what they're basing that on. But if you look at what's going on in California, if you look at what's going on right now in Virginia in terms of these races, the Democrats are getting a lot of traction out of being pro-vaccine you know, pro-life, <laughs> you know, pro, pro anti-pandemic, maybe I should say, I don't know. But like, I, I just want to be clear about the metric here, right? So I know that Democrats in their DNA next year want to run on accomplishments, want to run on what have Democrats done for you. And they may have at that point have done a lot. They've already done a fair amount through the American Rescue Plan, a really competent vaccination program that's continuing to get more aggressive and adjusting to, you know, the new information that we're getting about the Delta variant, et cetera. 
But that's what Democrats would normally want to run on. This is what we've done for you, and this is what we're going to do for you. And I think what needs to be a greater emphasis, because that's their go-to, is creating the metric that's a measure between this is what we're doing and this is what you'll get if you elect Republicans. So Gavin Newsom has gone from, you know, this is what I'm doing to a real focus on the GOP frontrunner, right-wing radio host, Larry Elder, anti-masker, anti-vaxxer, anti-mitigation strategy, anti, you know, misogynist. You go through everything. He is just a right-winger through and through. But most most importantly, he's like, you know, he would appeal all the mandates, all the progress, all the all the mitigation efforts, everything that has really helped keep so many Californians safe. And when voters are instead of asking themselves, what have Democrats done for me lately? And, and instead asking themselves, what would happen if I put a Republican in charge of, you know, the state government or Republicans in charge of Congress? That is a comparison, given how fringe the Republican Party has gotten in these pandemic times that are literally life and death situations that I think have really started to scare people into momentum, into getting those ballots back. I know that when I started looking at Larry Elder, I mean, I live in here in California. You live here in California. I was like, oh, my God, where's my ballot? Like, (laughs) I can't get that ballot in the mail fast enough to say no effing way on the recall. Right. And and so it really actually I'm like a case in point. It worked for me. I was kind of like, oh, this will never happen. And then I was like, Larry Elder. Yeah. Fear is absolutely a political electoral motivator. And I think it actually feeds into the sort of midterm phenomenon where the party out of power, the party out of power in the White House typically makes big gains in Congress in midterm elections. And in the first midterm election of a sitting president, the average is over 30 seats. So if history were to assert itself, yes, Democrats are actually going to lose the majority of the House and and the Senate because it's a 50-50 Senate. There's no margin. That's an atypical year. Now, there have been years where that hasn't happened, most famously, most recently, in the year after 9-11. So George Bush, the Republicans, actually gained seats because they wrote a, a this rally around the flag sort of, uh, you know, um, feeling into into gain, gaining seats in Congress. So we already have history on our side. And, and one of the factors in the midterm election is you hate the president. Right. If you're at the party out of power, the president is just it's he is doing everything you hate about the other party. And and for a few months, sort of Joe Biden had a bit of a pass. He's an old white guy and, and Donald Trump was making a lot of noise. And so a lot of focus wasn't really on Joe Biden. That has changed in the last several months. And it happened even before Afghanistan. If you listen to the traditional media, they'll say Afghanistan cost Joe Biden in the polls. Well, you know, we, we have civics, civics with a Q. We've been tracking Joe Biden from day one of his presidency. And his numbers had started to fall about a month to six weeks, even before the Afghanistan pullout. My theory is that things got bogged down in Congress, right? He was riding high when the uh, when the rescue plan passed. Things were happening. People were getting stuff. And then once she got caught up in, in Republicans slowing things down in Congress and, and Joe Manchin enabling that, that actually has cost Joe Biden help. So now you got you got you got um, a midterm election. You have a right wing that is really revving themselves up 
over mask and vaccine mandates. Is that enough to get out the Trump vote? That's the big question, Kerry, right? Because you can have an electorate like 2018 when it was mostly Democrats who turned out the Republican base was was depressed and Democrats made big gains. Or you could have an election like 2020 where the Trumpy vote came out and voted and they don't they haven't come out without Trump on the ballot. So that's sort of the big question. And I think this is what's driving a lot of that Republican uh, obsession with freedom while their own supporters are dying of COVID. I mean, at this point, early in the, in the, in the pandemic, it was New York, New Jersey, it was blue states. It was because we didn't know how to, how to prevent the disease. Doctors didn't know how to treat it. Now we have a vaccine. We have protocols that increase the ability of, of people to live. And we know that you social distance and you wear a mask and that is very, it's a, it's good protection against, um, infection. Now the Southern states, the, the red states, red counties and blue states, even they, they don't care. They decided it's about freedom. Wearing a piece of mask isn't somehow violates freedom and, uh, and they're dying. The vast majority of people dying now are, DeSantis supporters in Florida, Abbott supporters in Texas. And these are swing states. They are actually literally murdering their own supporters. So you have all these confluence of events, right, Carrie? You have Joe Biden's approval ratings are going down. You have conservatives sort of getting frothy about mask and vaccine mandates. And now on top of that, it's going to be the topic we'll be talking about later when we have our guests. But we can get started right now. This abortion thing. Because if the midterm elections is about motivating your own voters, can abortion bans, can the, can the overturn of Roe v. Wade motivate younger and, and women voters who otherwise might not have turned out to turn out and vote? And that's a big wild card. We don't know yet, but instinctively, it feels like this could be a massive factor next year. Right. And right. we're going to and we're going to ask Jody Hicks about that. Right. The our guest, um, because she's been doing a lot of campaigning for Gavin Newsom. Um, so we're, she'll have more definitive evidence than we will, or at least anecdotal evidence about what she's seen on the ground. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I go back to. I go back to this idea of putting Trump on the ballot, right? And this is essentially what what Democrats are doing, and it's essentially what Republicans are trying to do. And and I'm looking at who the voters are that they are targeting and honestly believing that Democrats have the better end of that, right? The voters that Democrats are targeting by trying to put Trump on the ballot, trying to put, you know, these sort of extreme you know, pro-pandemic, anti-life, like, you know, spread of the pandemic, ending of abortion. I mean, look at, if you just look at Texas, it's everything like most suburban voters don't want to become, right? An electrical grid that doesn't function, a legal end to abortion. So everything's happening in back alleys and, you know, you have to go out of state, you know, and then, and then of course, like not even, not protecting kids in schools because you're trying to, you know, prohibit mass mandates statewide and not making a big vaccination push. These are things that suburban voters do not want. And they are they don't have to, you know, ha- have a crazy active imagination 
to see what how these these policies have played out under Republican rule in Texas and Florida. We all know it's been a disaster, right? Now, the Republicans yeah. on the other side of the equation are trying to motivate the Trumpiest of Trump voters with their personal freedom stuff. And maybe they'll do it. But I have to tell you, not only has Trump never not only have these voters not ever really shown up when Trump isn't on the ticket, even when Trump has tried to put himself on the ticket, he's gone to places, he's campaigned in places like, you know, Kansas and Louisiana in 2018, 2019, and, and said, oh my gosh, it will be so embarrassing for me if you don't show up. You should vote like I'm on the ticket. I mean, these are things that he basically said, not exactly word for word, but damn close. And they still didn't show up. So I'm looking at suburban voters versus Trumpies. You know, and who, which one, which one of those people are more likely to be more responsive in a midterm election year to getting out to vote because of that? Yeah, you're talking about your children's health and safety. And this is these these ban, mandate bans are, are bizarre because this is a party supposedly about local control, right? They're uh, local control this. They are literally telling school boards that they cannot protect their children. That that's the argument, and 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 somehow uh, <laughs> they think they're going to ride that into an election. Now that does us no good if our base doesn't turn out if, if if they're not properly motivated. There's a little interesting fact, Carrie, of the places where where Donald Trump campaigned in 2019. Uh, and we're talking red counties in Kentucky and Louisiana because Democrats won both those governorships in deep red states. In those counties, the uh, the margin of victory for the Republicans was actually smaller than in the rest of the state. In other words, they motivated more Democrats to turn out and vote in the counties where Trump campaigned than he motivated extra Republicans to turn out. So, again, it's a very small sample size. I'm not really ready to say, you know, campaign everywhere, Donald, and because and, uh, it's going to help us. But it does suggest that that he may be still the biggest motivator for our base to turn out. So the Republican and, and people may not understand this, but the Republican vote is more consistent. They will get the bulk of their vote out because it's older, whiter and uh, and wealthier. And these are all sort of demographic factors that lead to better voter turnout. Our base is more black, more brown, younger, and those are lower Comparatively speaking, lower turnout, right? So in a presidential year, it's easier to get that vote out. In a midterm election, it's a lot harder. So generally speaking, they will get most of their vote out in any given election. So the real challenge is we need to get our vote out. And Carrie, you know, we, we can look at Virginia, which has um, statewide elections this year. We can look at the California recall. But these are Democratic states now. The real battle is going to be in the in the Senate battleground. And it's the exact same battleground as 2020. It's Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Texas at the statewide level for governor. These are all the same. Pennsylvania. These are the same states. These are going to be 50-50. It's going to be a real, real challenge to hold control of the Senate, if not expand it. But uh, I, I, I think abortion is an issue that can motivate people. Donald Trump injecting himself and talking about running for re-election is freaking terrifying. And everybody <laughs> should. And he's, he's basically 
likely handpicking, he will likely have handpicked the vast majority of those Republicans running for those seats. Yeah, they're going to be super right wing. They're not going to be, you know, it's not going to be a middle of the road Republican trying to appeal to both sides at all. No, we just saw this in California right now. They could have, there's Kevin Falconer, who's the um, mayor of San Diego, a Republican, very moderate. Republicans had, had California Republicans, if they had a functioning state party, and a strategic bone, you know, one cell of strategy in their brain, they would have really coalesced around Faulkner and it could have been a lot messier. But instead, because we live in the era of the Trump Republican Party, the candidate that got all the attention was this Larry Elder, who's who's he was a right wing wacko. Trump is wacko. And and it made it a lot easier. Like you said earlier, like once you saw him starting to rise up and becoming that Republican alternative. Yeah. You're extra motivated to turn out and vote, right? Where's and, that ballot? Give me that ballot. Right. I want to sign it. XX, you know, let's keep Gavin Newsom in, you know, and it's not that like, it's. I mean, I'm fine with Gavin Newsom, but it's not like I grew any more fond of Gavin Newsom over the course of the last month. It's that I looked at Larry Elder and said, oh, crap, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, so, no, let's be honest. You're yeah. going to vote anyway, right? I mean, this is your job. You're, you're a political aware oh, yeah. person. But that extra level of, 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 of that, that feeling of like, I got to vote. Like when you start looking at people that are less engaged politically, that's the feeling you want to, to you, you know, have them feeling that urgency to participate. And so in California, by all indications, it should look like Gavin Newsom should, should survive the recall fairly easily. But in these really tight battlegrounds next year, it's it's it becomes a bigger issue. Like, you know, if you're a 50-50 state, their base is already more motivated to turn up. How do we get ours to be more engaged? And, and you're right. Donald Trump is making sure that he's putting Larry Elders on the ballot in all these key Senate races that should also help motivate our base to turn out and vote. Yeah. Look at look look at Glenn Youngkin, you know, in in Virginia, who's running against. He's the Republican running against Terry McAuliffe, and he for is he, for governor. Sorry, for governor in Virginia, and that's happening this November, right? Yeah. And he he Glenn Youngkin really wanted to run as this pro business guy, but he's been so boxed in by all these fringe GOP policies. You know, I mean, the the Terry McAuliffe ad that I looked at over the weekend had. You know, this is approved by Terry McAuliffe. And then it went straight to Glenn Youngkin saying himself, <laughs> President President Trump is so much of the reason why I'm running. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, let, in case you have forgotten, right, I'm running. I mean, you're, my opponent is running because of President Trump. I just the immediate tie before it went into all this, like, Glenn Youngkin, anti-vax, anti-mandate stuff, right? Anyway, I I just want to mention one thing, too, is that while Republicans are trying to turn out their base, they're already trumpeting the idea that there's going to be all kinds of uh, fraud and stuff. And Larry Elder already has a website up and has retweeted websites that are claiming that there's already been fraud found in the California election. So at the same time that they're trying to motivate their base to get out, they're doing the same thing that they that Trump did in Georgia, right, with the Senate elections there, the special elections, it, or the runoffs really is what they were. You know, they're, they're trying to get their base out 
And and the message at the same time, the conflicting message is your vote will never count because there's too much fraud anyway. Yeah, no, they're they're suppressing their own vote. And it'll be really interesting to see what that uh, election day turnout is for Republicans here in California, because we may have further evidence because Trump ain't going to help himself. He's going to do the exact same thing uh, next year during those midterm elections. So that could be a little bit of a of a surprise bonus to help Democratic chances. The other thing I was going to say, Carrie, is, is our, our guest is ready to come on, so I'm about to call her in. But uh, one of the videos in that Virginia governor's race that was secretly recorded was that Republican candidate talking about abortion and saying how he wanted to overturn abortion. He wasn't saying this publicly, but it was to a who we thought was a supporter. He said that privately. So the issue is um, going to have salient. It's going to be important. And I actually think that was the first real hit this Republican candidate took in that Virginia race. It sort of finally said, like, wait, no, this guy's not a pro-business Republican. This guy is a Trump extremist. So yeah, and he was, he, yeah, he was sorry. He was saying, I can't, I can't beat this on the campaign trail, right? I can't beat this drum, this pro, this uh, anti-abortion drum on the campaign trail. But just wait until I get in power. I mean, that was basically exactly what he said. Just wait until I get in power, and then. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So this issue is going to be on the ballot, particularly since the Supreme Court is going to force the issue. So to talk about that is Jody Hicks. She is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood California. Oh, I love your background, Jody. Jody, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Carrie, you, you had some really good ideas on how to start off this interview. So I'm going to I'm going to let you kick things off. <laughs> Everyone, I have the occasional good idea, and I like to get in there when I do. No, I mean, I just, we're obviously going to talk to you about the politics of this, but I also was reading an article uh, before you came on, um, you know, just talking about the human cost of this Texas abortion law. And I know that, you know, Planned Parenthood California is literally dealing with the fallout from that, you know, scheduling uh, services for people, things like that. I just wish you would start out by talking a little bit about what the women of Texas are experiencing and how your, um, you know, those that's sort of reverberating right here in California for you and your organization. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, we can't, I can't say enough personally from an organization how much our hearts go out to the people in Texas, the providers there that are just heartbroken and still trying to do everything that they can. Um, I was talking with the the CEO from from Texas last week, and and you can see the heartbreak in their eyes because they know what this means, and and it's what it always means when there's a barrier to care, especially a sensitive and timely service like reproductive health care, which is some people will find a way. It, abortion doesn't go away because you pass a law. It just doesn't. And so some people will be able to find a way to get those services. And then, you know, disproportionately, that will affect low-income people, um, generally a lot of people of color as they try and navigate an already complicated public health system. And, and you know, it's it's been a week and a half, two weeks, I don't know, it's exhausting. Um, but we're already hearing the stories of, you know, it's a six-week ban People don't know unless they know their bodies really well, generally, till 
four and a half, five weeks, and then you have to navigate and try and find an appointment. And we have young people who have never been out of the state of Texas, and now they have this important service and decisions to make, and they have to navigate a health system and travel. And it's it's just, it's, it's, hard, it's cruel, and I think it's meant to be cruel. And, you know, it, it's, it's certainly woken us all up to the conversation, but, but really we're, we're just heartbroken. We really are. And mad, but sad as well. Yeah. Now you're right about, I mean, I don't know when that decision happened because it feels <laughs> like it's been so much negative news that, that you sort of even lose track of time. It feels like it's been forever that we've been having this fight and the broader fight obviously almost has been forever. Mm-hmm. Um, is Planned Parenthood, so you're talking about a lot of low-income women are affected. Uh, are they on their own financially in having to navigate out of the state in order to get the services that they need? Or, or does Planned Parenthood have some way to help these women out as well? Yeah, I mean, luckily, there's a lot of nonprofit nonprofit organizations that, that help with that um, abortion navigation. And um, there's there's funds that will help people travel, but but we're still working through all the logistics of it because it is new. But I will tell you, I mean, in California, we're already seeing clear from Texas, so you can imagine the border states and how they're impacted. But for California, we're seeing two to three patients a day since that decision happened. And, and it's important to note, I mean, it's important to talk about the fact that access to reproductive health care has been an issue. It's been on the ballot. And so we saw at Planned Parenthood California last year over 7,000 patients that came to us from out of state for all sorts of services. So, you know, Mississippi, where this case is coming this year, there's only one health center in the entire state, and that's true for other states as well. So, so access has been an issue, including in Texas, and the, you know, the legal barriers is just sort of that last nail in, in the coffin for people trying to, to navigate and get healthcare services that, that they deserve. And, you know, it's, it's just, we know it changes the trajectory of, of your future and your life to be able to make decisions for yourself and your family and, and all of those things. So um, we are working round the clock on what we need to do to prepare for this next year. I, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be a young woman, you know, without a lot of resources trying to navigate that system, you know, and it just is, feels very unimaginable. And so, I, you know, I do wonder then in that context, you know, as you've been sort of going around the country helping to make sure that we don't end up with someone, you know, like Greg Abbott running the country, you know, and just let's let's explain to people, too, that they don't that don't understand the, the recall here. If Gavin Newsom doesn't breach 50 percent. Right. Then whoever gets the next most votes, which could be something like 38 percent or could be 19 percent. Who knows? There's like 40 something people on the ballot. That person will become governor. They could get a whole lot less votes than Gavin Newsom. And then he would they would still become the governor. But anyway, so back to you, though, you've been growing around the uh, state, you know, campaigning in certain instances for for Governor Newsom. And I wonder what you have found uh, specifically in the last several weeks as the gravity of the Texas law sort of settled in and people started to understand what Larry Elder represented, has it has it motivated in your opinion? 
I mean, absolutely. You can see from that LA Times article that came out, the days are so long. Was that six weeks ago, five weeks ago? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> from the time that that LA Times article came out to now, I mean, it's been like a 20 point swing. And I think there was a moment, you know, the, the recall is weird. Like you, you get a ballot, but is it real? It's confusing. Do I have to, if I kind of am okay with the governor, do I have to actually do something? And I think that's, that when the polling came out, that was probably real polling. It was sort of half and half. It was neck and neck, and people were sort of unclear on the the gravity of it. And then folks like our organization started really sounding the alarm. And no, this is real. Your inaction is a vote, um, and we could have, as as you suggested, someone with a very small percentage of the will of Californians becoming our next leader. And that person that was ahead in the polls was just polar opposite of the values of most people in California and really just alarming. And and, and then he kept talking, which was also amazing. Um, so that was sort of a little bit of a gift as well, that he, he decided to go with it. And keep. Where exactly does Larry Elder stand on the abortion issue? What has he talked about it much or what? Yeah, he has. So he's, it's funny, I, you know, a lot of the candidates are saying that, you know, it's a, it's a Democratic Democratic majority. I don't need to comment on that, even though we know some of them have voting records. We know where they are. Um, he said that Roe v. Wade was the worst decision to come out of the Supreme Court. And then he tried to follow it up with, but it's not top of mind. But then a very prominent anti-abortion activist tweeted out that uh, he promised her that he would defund organizations like Planned Parenthood. He would appoint judges that were um, anti-abortion. So he you know, doubled down on the issue, despite the fact that seven, over 70% of people in California believe that abortion should be safe and legal. So um, I think it, it drastically turned the conversation, including things like climate change and, you know, um, all, all sorts of things where he's against our values, gun control, um, a, a lot of issues that are important to Californians. Yeah, it seems it followed a similar trajectory in, in Virginia, where sort of there's a sort of blasé, like, are we really thinking about politics? We just got through 2020. Can we get a break, please? Whatever, you know, Gavin, he's, he's okay. I'm not going to really think about it. And then in both states, the uh, abortion issue was seemed like to be like the first big wake up call. And I know Gavin, Governor Newsom tried to talk about his accomplishments in his first you know, couple months. I don't think people's minds have changed, but the engagement has definitely picked up. You know, the early the early liberal um, California liberals just weren't really that engaged. And I think having Larry Elder to run against uh, made all the difference. And because he's so comically bad and so out of step with the state. But abortion's a big, big um, was a big catalyst for that. Can we see that same effect in some of the uh, battlegrounds, including, you know, and, and I know you're not in Texas, but do you get a sense of how this is playing nationally in battlegrounds like Texas and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and so on? I don't know specifically in, in Texas. I think it'll be interesting as it's sort of a, it's a, it's a bit of a, and even for me, it's been a bit of a slow burn. I mean, I am 50 years old. I don't know a world where Roe doesn't exist. And anyone 65 or under as an adult that has never navigated a pre-Roe world, we just haven't. And that's a huge part 
of the electorate. And I don't know when the last time a right, a constitutional right was taken away. I think it's different when we're talking about it and talking about how things should be. But this is a world that we've all become very comfortable. The majority of the population believes that Roe should be upheld. So as we saw what happened to Texas, I think people have have certainly woken up that that's a possibility that can happen. But I still think even in California, people think, oh, that's Texas. And so when the Supreme Court starts deciding and arguing and making those decisions, I think it'll be another big wake up. And it's been a bit of a slow burn. I, I was joking that I was at an event and I started talking about Roe and I made someone cry when I was talking about it, just sort of as a, as a fact that this is truly a, a jeopardy this last year. Again, not because she doesn't understand issues is because she just really wasn't hadn't wrapped her mind around the fact that that could actually happen. We've been talking about it. We talked about it a lot in 2016. Um, but here we are, they took a case and here we are. And I think when those arguments happen, it, it will be a huge tidal wave of people wanting to do something um, and ensure that that doesn't happen in their state. Jody, you're you're in good company here because this is like the 50 year old club right here. We're all just we were just talking about Marcos's mental decline before we came on, and I still think he's pretty coherent. But every once in a while, you know, every once so, in a while, I'm yeah, reminded. yeah. I told him I was still I was at the top of my game, but in any case, so you know, back, but back to so miss just to clear up for people, the Mississippi um, the Supreme Court has a, agreed to hear this abortion ban in Mississippi, which if I remember right, is instead of at six weeks, isn't it closer to like 15 or 16 weeks? 15. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 15, right? So people think that this is perhaps a more viable path for overturning Roe. I, I, am I correct about that? Yeah. I mean, I think once they took a case, it, it, it sort of sent a signal. I mean, that you can look at the makeup of the Supreme Court and if they're taking a case and rolling on it, that it, it you know, um, there's a lot of different avenues, and I think people have legal opinions on what could be worse or um, worst case scenario and maybe something, you know, we can navigate. But it, it's not it wasn't great when they decided to take the case in the first place. And I think then the other signal, obviously, is what happened in Texas. And I think what people are confused about is that they passed a law. So there's sort of this like, well, we would never do that here. But a lot of states have passed laws. They're just unconstitutional. And, and they so they don't go into effect because they're unconstitutional. And Texas is not different. That law is unconstitutional. But the way that they wrote it, instead of having a state enforcement, they basically deputized all the citizens all anywhere that they could sue someone if they were to um, aid and abet anyone for, for getting an abortion. And what the Supreme Court did was just really look the other way and said, well, it's not a, we can't stop it, stop the state from enforcing it, but we don't have any jurisdiction on people suing. So we're just letting it happen. So so we're and the, that and we did talk about that law in detail last week. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it's vigilante justice. It is a horrible law. And if we're going to make laws like that on a broader set of issues, we're just going to devolve into a society of lawlessness where you yeah, know, neighbors are turn, spying yeah, on neighbors. Completely. I'm going to turn somebody over for owning a gun. Let's see how quickly right. the Supreme Court lets that <laughs> right. one stay Jumps up. Jumps into that one, right? Yeah. So, 
But do you have any idea? I mean, I'm just wrapping my mind around what overturning Roe would mean and the patchwork then of states, right, who there would be some states that would have abortion, some states that wouldn't. Um, and do you have any idea what that ratio would look like? Yeah, this is where, again, I become like an SNL Debbie Downer skit. Um, there, it's really bad. So, uh, I mean, there's 26 states that they think, uh, depending on how that ruling happens. So, so there's been, and in different ways and in different, ta- you know, they've all passed laws differently. Some of them have a, a trigger in effect. So once the Supreme Court makes a decision, that law goes into effect. Um, you know, even the Texas version I think three, Florida, um, Arizona, and I, I think Kentucky has already said that, that that's a blueprint for them. So if they don't get it the traditional way, they'll do it in that way. So it's, you know, it, it's a it's a chunk of the of the country. And I think um, I know Planned Parenthood and there's other providers and certainly a lot of nonprofit uh, navigators where we're all trying to grapple on what that kind of network, what that will look like for for patients and trying to um, get services. So uh, here's a question. Um, I wonder if this, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether this is the dog that caught the the wheel, right? Caught the car. Um, We know that the evangelical base of the Republican Party really cares about this issue. They'll, They'll vote on it and they vote on it every year. How much do some of these Republican politicians and some of their big money supporters, how much do they just expect the Supreme Court to keep invalidating it so they can keep playing those evangelical voters for suckers knowing that the actual right was was never going to go away. And suddenly, oh, oh, crap, the Supreme Court just did this. And for the other, you have Texas, which is trying to attract tech companies from, from Silicon Valley and creative class workers. And so how much do you actually think Greg Abbott wanted the Supreme Court to let this thing through? Is there a real conviction there? I don't know which way I feel better about it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> if it's, you know, I, I don't know. But they they defunded groups like Planned Parenthood prior. They knew what the outcomes are when you do things like that. They know that, and you can look at Mississippi, how dangerous it is just to give birth in a state where they don't put any resources to reproductive and sexual health care, both preventive and taking care of public health and you know, when you when you won't expand groups like or, or programs like Medicaid, that you're you know what the outcomes are. I mean, they have that and, you know, it's very plain and simple for Texas what the maternal mortality outcomes have been since they've defunded Planned Parenthood and not expanded Medicaid. And they they seem to keep pushing that envelope anyway. So um, I. I don't know if I feel better if they were doing that because of some sort of conviction or if they really just don't care enough that it um, they're allowing to let people, really people die so that they can continue to get support from a small, loud group of, of folks. Um, but it's it's awful. We, you know, we had, um, I, I'm going to switch just a little bit uh, to a different, I mean, same topic, but a little different angle on it. We had Ellie Mistal from um, The Nation on last week, their justice correspondent. And at the time, he was apoplectic over uh, the White House's, what he considered, or the DOJ's really, you know, 
faltering response to the Texas law. Now, you know, if the if the Supreme Court ultimately overturns uh, Roe, you know, in, for instance, next year's Mississippi case, I don't know how much the federal government can do. I have no idea. But since then, they, they have brought forth this lawsuit in Texas, right? The Justice Department filed a lawsuit suing Texas over this law. Um, how are you, how are you guys viewing that? Do you think that the Biden administration is doing what they can? Are there things that you would more things that you would like to see more aggressive action? Um, you know, we're open to any creative ideas you have. So if if there's something that you don't think is getting worth enough time, please please feel free to share it with us here. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think everybody was sort of. You know, the way that they wrote that law was really clever. I think uh, how the Supreme Court decided to look the other way was also clever. I think everybody is, again, trying to figure out the right avenue to to stop what what really people have been working on for a very, very long time, diligently, as you pointed out, that their side is, has been working on the courts and, and this issue. But, I mean, I think... I think um, someone said this to me, and I have to believe it to be true, that, you know, while we've had these this supreme this con, uh, constitutional right, we have never taken care of the issue of access. We have never really grappled with talking about removing abortion stigma, talking about that people need services, how they get them, that, you know, insurance coverage and all the other barriers that that exist for somebody being able to just go to a doctor's office and get services. And so if we're talking about it in that way, you know, there is a bill going through Congress. Um, They're going to have issues in the Senate. We know that. So I think if there's pressure to be put on our policymakers to let them know that this is a galvanizing issue for us as well, that that we're going to vote on this issue too, that, you know, we're not going to let the Supreme Court make a decision that's going to harm this many millions of people in the country without doing something in response. That's what, that's the message we need to send. And that's what we need to do. They're going to have to take action. They haven't had to at the, at the congressional and Senate level. And they're, they're just going to have to now, you know. Are you talking about the repeal of the Hyde Amendment that prohibits federal dollars into going into abortion services, or is there something else specifically you're, you're referencing? There's something else. There's a Women in Health Protection Act that's also going through Congress right now. I think Pelosi just said that it will it will come to a vote, um, and then it'll go to the Senate, where you know we'll have to work really hard to try and where all good vote. ideas go to die. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but where elections matter, right? And we have right. to be better matter. about talking about being successful in the end. Elections matter. They matter. I mean, this is this is where this is uh, this is going to be on the ballot next year, right? It's not just the Supreme Court. It's can Congress push through a bill that helps clear the barriers to access that you're talking about, that helps level the playing field nationwide on the issue, and and that frames uh, abortion as access abortion access to abortion as access to health care. I, I wonder if you think enough people really think of abortion that way. I mean, I can't, you know, I, I covered, <laughs> I always go back to this. I'm sure our listeners are sick of it. But anyway, I covered LGBTQ issues for a long time and and for a decade. And then um, one of the things, one of the 
the real benefits of the LGBTQ movement was all the personal stories that people were willing to tell. So for instance, when we were trying to repeal, when the activists, I was a journalist, but when the activists were trying to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the military's gay ban, there was story after story after story that, that lesbian and gay service members were willing to share about being pursued by the government, having their private emails hacked, you know, getting kicked out for, you know, nothing, essentially, for rumor and innu- innuendo. And I thought, where are these stories for the abortion movement, right? Where are these stories? And more recently, I've been thinking, you know, the people who are most passionate about telling these stories are people who have been in wanted pregnancies have deeply wanted to bear the the child they're carrying and have gotten to a place where it's clear that this is a tragic situation and they have to make a tragic choice. Right. And I wonder if, um, you know, I, I, I hear so often people talking to their husbands or men and they've never thought about it. They've never thought about it. And I just wonder, like, do you think enough people really think that access to abortion is access to health care? No, not right now. I think you're right that 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 is a lot of the conversation is how we can tell stories, how we can talk about this differently. You know, there was the the 90s um, where everybody talked about it as being safe, legal and rare, um, which still allows us to have judgment. And we still have biases and judgment that go into all types of sexual and reproductive health care. If you remember Rush Limbaugh, you know, shaming someone about birth control and calling her a slut. And so, I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, we never fully got rid of those stigmas and, and we have to do that. We just have to. And, and it's right. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to say, you know, abortion is no, never, it's an abomination. It's all these things. But then we say, but then because other people came and told stories about, well, wait, um, you know, I actually lost uh, a wanted um, pregnancy and, and I couldn't get services because we had created these, you know, legal barriers that, that don't move. And then it was like, okay, except for this, except for rape and incest, except for, so, th- so we're putting judgment really on, is it your fault? And if it is, then no. And if it, if we, you know, and then, and then it's not talking about it in terms of healthcare and decisions for what's best for your health, whatever that reason is. And that's really what it is. You're making a decision based on your your body, your health, your future, your family, all of the things, just like you do for any other healthcare service. And that's how we should be treating it. And, and those are the conversations. That's the movement we need to have where we're not just not talking about it for 50 years and depending on a, a right that can go away. So, so Republicans need personal freedom to not mask but but there's yeah. no personal freedom around health care issues for women's bodies anyway. Right. So that are not contagious, the last idea. Right. <laughs> so I know I know we're in the first few weeks of this post row world. So I, I know it's it's really early. And um, but I have a 14 year old daughter and I see she's been posting these TikToks on her Instagram of young women sort of, you know, talking about Roe v. Wade and talking about the, what's happening in Texas and just getting, you know, really riled up and getting their followers riled up. And 
And so to me, it's, that's sort of a little spark of, of hope, right? Real light that, that young people using their social media outlet platform are engaging on the issue and pulling in, you know, girls like my daughter, but also once I can vote next year and can, you know, maybe become politically active. So again, this is really early, but have you noticed on, on your end of things, maybe in your membership or rallies, has there been any, any movement with younger women and not just women, but younger people mm-hmm. engaged on the issue? Cause I, I see this little slice of social media. I wonder if you're, you're seeing it in the real world yet. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think I think where the change will be, again, is how we talk about it without stigma. And it's funny, I have a 12 year old and uh, her friends were saying the word abortion and abortion is important. And even I'm not all the way used to that with with someone, you know, in sixth grade to be talking about abortion, but they do, which is great. And and I think it's important. And that that will be sort of the change. I, I also heard from a young person who um, was in their 20s who uh, said to me, you know, there's a lot of talk about this next generation is going to be the hope, it's going to be the change. And they were like, that's a lot of pressure and not really fair because we didn't we didn't get to this place, which I think is also true. It really is sort of our generation that was a little complacent about a right that that has been there in all our life and i and i think it's up to us to really make those changes and then the the storytelling and the messaging and all of that can be more streamlined and you know back when we were fighting for lgbtq ia rights it's also a generation of of normal see and talking about it my my daughter loves to correct me and chastise me about my bad use of pronouns <laughs> her favorite thing to do um, but that's she's absolutely world. right and that's what you know we, we can pass laws and set that up and they can they can change culture and change people's minds right and so i think i think that's a real hope is we need to do the work to change the laws and and they can they can change minds and hearts in defense of Gen X, we're a very small generation. We're, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's really tiny, sandwiched between the boomers and, right. you know, Gen Z millennials, right? So, I, you know. Yeah. Are, we, are we blaming the boomers? I don't know. I think the boomers fought a lot harder for this than we did, frankly, they did. on this issue. I, on this particular issue, there we cannot blame the boomers. <laughs> they absolutely yeah. did the hard work, and I think they they've been a little heartbroken that we didn't that you know did. we didn't keep it up, and so I yeah. think we have some work to do. And uh, RBG is looking down right now, thinking what happened to the next right. generation. Right. So. Yeah. Complacency, I think, is that right word. And mm-hmm. uh, I think this is shaking us out of that complacency. Uh, and so hopefully it, something good comes out of it. So we're coming to the uh, end of the show. Jody, can you tell us what people can do to engage, to join this fight and to, uh, and, you know, support your organization? Anybody else? Can you, can you talk a little bit about what people can actually do since we're an we're a organization that's focused on action? Yeah, I mean, I definitely always vote. Um, Elections matter. This one in California matters, but 2022 is going to matter. So always register and vote. 
if you can donate, there's a lot of good organizations, especially in Texas right now, not just Planned Parenthood, where we're going to ensure that people get services, but there's a lot of good organizations that are also navigating with travel and lodging and, and, and doing all of that work, which is really important. So if you can um, donate. And then I think, you know, if you can tell a story that it is the beauty of, of a generation of social media and outlets like this, and that's how we're, we're going to change people's minds on this, is telling stories, talking about reproductive and sexual health as a normal part of healthcare, and not having it be something that can be overlooked anymore. I think it's the, the three most important things to do. Jody Hicks is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood California. Thank you so much for joining us. That was that was very informative. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And Carrie, the, the you know the the that was that was a very good conversation. And the piece that really stuck out to me was the idea of stigma. Of, right. of destigmatizing. And it was it was a big factor, I think, in, in the in the in the right in the fight for equality that you you know you yeah. chronicled as a journalist. Those were all coming out stories. I mean, you know, there was a generation that that and my, you know, the, this is where Gen X, I think, did a decent job. But there and and generations before too. But there was there was a generation, I think, in in two thousand four and maybe you know the nineties where we where we just decided, hey, you know, I'm going to come out and coming out and those kitchen table conversations were the difference over and over again. People realizing that they knew someone. They thought they didn't know someone, but it turns out their, you know, relative, their son, their daughter, whatever, you know, their their child, their sister or brother or whatever, you know, that was that was the difference in momentum. So sorry, like you were saying, no, I mean, I no. do think it's the the destigmatizing of that is what made it come to fruition. And, and we're not done yet, but, um, you know, that. No, and, and the way she framed it is her sixth grade daughter talking about abortion, just talk about the word abortion. When our political generation really created all sorts of euphemisms for it, right? I mean, choice being the big one, right? But right. Uh, for choice, or there's this whole decade where I don't approve of abortion, but... Uh, you know, a woman should have a right to make her own decision, right? Like there was always this couching and this stigma attaching, right? Like, because by saying I don't approve of it, you're you're creating a stigma, you know, whether you agree in the right to choose or not. Right, um, and that, you were stigmatizing and, it. Right, and Democrats did the same thing with abortion activists behind closed doors that they did with 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 LGBTQ activists for a long time, which is we're with you, we're with you. But once we get into office, we're not acting on your issues, right? Don't make us push your issues once we get into office because that could, that could have a, a backlash. And Democrats have done that for decades, and they did it for a long time with LGBTQ issues until they saw the momentum shift, right? They saw the political upside. So hopefully uh, this is going to play out politically. I mean, this is inevitable and it'll be something definitely uh, worth watching and hopefully can galvanize people that don't otherwise engage politically or may have voted for president. And we're going to sit out 2022 because it's not Donald Trump on the ballot. So hopefully this does become a galvanizing issue to rally around because we need people to do that. We don't have a choice. 
people have to do that. So, Carrie, that's our show today. Thank you so much for being a wonderful co-host. As always, thank you to Jody Hicks. She is the president and CEO of Plant Parenthood California. Please donate to your local Plant Parenthood chapter and the National Plant Parenthood Action because they're doing they're doing God's work on this issue. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. Thank you, our viewers, for joining us. We air every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.